When my children want to have a good laugh at my expense, they remind me of a time when we were on a vacation and we were making our way up over a mountain in Tennessee and the car broke down. And here we were sitting on the side of the road with a car full of kids and a policeman came by and I told him we were just fine, thank you. And he took off and left us sitting there. And we ended up sitting there for quite a while. And they, la they laugh about that because I was, I was a dad that knew that that car was ready for the vacation trip because the garage mechanic had told me the car was ready for the vacation trip. I had taken the garage mechanic at his word, and he had told me it was ready to go. It was fit for travel, and it wasn't. The famous missionary David Livingston had a favorite memory verse, Matthew 28, 20. He quoted it many times as his favorite text, I am with you always to the end of the age. And again and again at crisis points in his life, he would record it in his diary when he was going through a major crisis <clears throat> in times of emergency, emergency or danger. He would write this text in his diary with this comment, this is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor. So there's the end of it. I am with you always. And he said, a promise is only as good as the one who is making it. That garage mechanic wasn't very good at making a promise. He didn't know what he was talking about. He left me sitting on the side of the road with a car full of young children. And here... David Livingston knew what he was talking about when he took the, the Lord at his word. The word of a gentleman. The word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor. For, so there's the end of it. I am with you always. The verses before us today are the promises of our security in Christ, and they are the words of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor. He keeps his word. God cannot lie. We look today at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 37, and I invite you to pay attention to the word of the Lord. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. And God cannot lie. It is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor. He keeps his word. So what God's word says about the believer's security in Christ leads to confidence. And if you leave here today without confidence, I hope the Lord will change your heart because here are five questions, the answers to which 
affirm that believers in Jesus will be kept safe eternally. What else is there to say, Paul says? This is the end of all debate. God has spoken. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's the first question. And the answer to that question is simply this. Nothing can stand against us. If God is for us, nothing can stand against us. And here's the proof. God did not spare His own Son. Jesus was given up to die for sinful people. He did, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. He gave Him up for us all. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 50. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 1 John 2.2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You're here today because you believe that. Is that correct? You believe that Christ died for sinners and Christ died for you. You believe that Christ died for the, the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the cross of Christ is the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And because of his death on the cross, we can know that God is for us. That's one of the reasons we can have certainty. That's one of the reasons we can have confidence today. That's one of the reasons we can know where we stand with a holy God. The second question that Paul asks, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Verse 17 indicates this, in order that we may also share in his glory. We are co-heirs with God. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God. Adopted children receive the full benefits as family members. We have the same Father as Jesus. If we are Christians, if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in the same family. All things, all the same benefits and blessings that come to Christ come, for, uh, come to us. Our rewards and gifts of grace come to us. I read a story about the Yates Pool in West Texas. There was a man in West Texas during the Depression who had a big sheep ranch, but he was losing his ranch because he couldn't make the payments to the bank. <clears throat> his ranch didn't bring in enough income, and he was in danger of losing everything. One day, some seismological explorers came to his ranch and asked if they could drill for oil, that there might be oil on his land. And here he was nearly destitute, but he said, go ahead and see what you can find. And they drilled for oil, and a few days later they came to him and said that they had found oil on his land at 1,115 feet. They struck a huge oil reserve, and it came in at 80,000 barrels a day. And they came in with many subsequent uh, wells and discovered that there were several others more than twice as large. In fact, 30 years later, a discovery after the discovery, a government test of one of the wells showed that it had the potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day. Yet Mr. Yates lived for years on that property without ever knowing 
that he was a multimillionaire. The Yates Oil Reserve was very famous as a, as a uh, Yates pool, but, but Mr. Yates didn't even know how wealthy he was. There are a lot of people who don't know how wealthy they can be because they don't know Christ. There are a lot of people who are Christians who don't know how wealthy they are because they don't have assurance of their salvation. They don't have assurance of the blessings that come to them by the Holy Spirit. They don't have confidence of their salvation. But this is what the Father does for those who believe in Christ, who, who trust in Jesus Christ through faith in Him. The third question is this, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Revelation 12:10 says that Satan is busily trying to bring charges against us. He's the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. He's the slanderer, but he is unsuccessful. God has declared believers to be righteous. That's the main message of Romans, that we are justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has declared believers to be righteous. That's the main message of Romans. This is the believer's confidence. Then the fourth question is this, Who then is the one who condemns? If we are declared righteous, how can anyone bring a condemnation challenge against us? It's like we're coated with Teflon. No charge against us will stick. Jesus won't bring a charge against us. He said in John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. The Living Bible translates verse 24, Will Christ judge us? No, for He is the one who died for us. If Jesus died and rose again for us, He certainly will not condemn us. In fact, He is at God's right hand defending us, speaking up for us, interceding for us. Would God ever fail to answer a, per a prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ? Of course not. No accusation can stand against the believer who is being defended at the right hand of God by the Son of God, who is our advocate and defender, who speaks to the Father on our behalf. He is our great high priest who is representing us before the Father's throne. That's the message of Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Then verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, I don't think Paul is talking about our love for Christ. Because my love for Christ changes every day. It runs hot and cold. It's up and down. It's on and off. It's fickle. We know ourselves too well. It's Christ's love in giving Himself up for us to die for our sins. Nothing and no one can separate the believer from the love of Christ. This word of assurance is the believer's confidence. The famous British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon once saw a weather vane on which was inscribed the words in brass, God is love. He said, that's not appropriate. The weather vane changes direction with the direction of the wind. And God's love isn't like that. It doesn't change direction all the time. But then he thought about it and he says, no, wait a minute. That is appropriate. Because God's love never changes no matter what direction the wind is blowing. That's true, isn't it? So these five questions reflect a God-given confidence. We can have confidence because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Because nothing can condemn us. Nothing can bring a charge against us because we are God's chosen people. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ.
What God's Word says about the believer's security in Christ leads us to have confidence and certainty. But next, what God's Word says about the believer's security in Christ also leads to courage. The Bible says we face death. The Bible says God's people are promised that we are purposed and prepared for glory in spite of suffering. Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's our destiny, is glory. It follows that no matter what may happen in this life, nothing can separate us from God's love. Now, Paul lists seven afflictions here in verse 35. Sounds rather glim, grim and, and uh, difficult to read and, and kind of gruesome. But the fact is, this is a realistic portrayal of life in this world, especially for people who are facing persecution and death and martyrdom. And that's what it is for a lot of people in our world today. But listen to what it says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Not a very pretty picture. So we need courage. God's people are promised that we are destined for glory. But in the meantime, we need courage. We need fortitude. We need stamina in the face of these afflictions. What about trouble? The word is tribulation. It's the Latin word tribulum. It's a flail. It was a device that was used to, uh, to uh, pound grain and separate the wheat from the chaff. And the early believers were pounded by their tribulations. Paul used this word when he said to the early believers in, in uh, Acts chapter 14 that we must, through many tribulations, go through many sufferings to, go th- to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. Hardship, that means a narrow place. This may be many people's story. This may be the story of some people in this room today. I've heard this story many times myself in my 52 years as a pastor. But I heard about a woman recently who was uh, married to a non-Christian man. She herself was a non-Christian when they got married. She had a delightfully pagan non-Christian, middle-class American marriage until she became dissatisfied with her marriage and she met a friend, told her about her situation. She didn't know her friend had become a Christian, but she unburdened her heart to her Christian friend and her friend invited her to a women's Bible study. She attended the women's Bible study and then she herself became a Christian. Well, her husband didn't like the new person that she had become. Her husband began to resent the new person she had become. He began to abuse her verbally and physically because he resented the Christian that she was and he resented the church and he resented Christ because she was a different person than the one he had married. And she was in a hard place. She was in a hemmed-in place. She was in a narrow place. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here. And that's the situation of a lot of people today. Hardship, persecution. Maybe you remember the story of Dana Curry and Heather Mercer. They went to Afghanistan about 20 years ago to minister to Muslim women in uh, 
in a ministry of humanitarian work. And in that humanitarian ministry, they were sharing the gospel with Muslim women, and they were arrested by the Taliban and uh, imprisoned. And 10 days into their, their, they were put on trial. And 10 days into their trial, they, uh, 9-11 happened, and they were moved out of Kabul from one place to another, and uh, their lives were in danger. They didn't know if they were going to live or die. And then the American military moved in and rescued them just before they thought they were going to die. A great outcome for them, but it was a terrible story when they realized what was happening to the Muslim women that they were ministering to. The dangers, the persecution, the suffering of the Christians in Afghanistan is something that they told about later on, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Famine. Nakedness, danger, sword, the possibility of martyrdom. Heather Mercer told a story, God sent me to prison to set me free. I don't think that I realized how much fear I had in my life. I had to confront my deepest and darkest fears. I knew it might cost me my life to reach Muslims with the love of Jesus. God made himself known to me. Now what have I to fear? I was able to see the good that came out of the bad. Eventually, the good overshadowed the bad. The church has grown exponentially in Afghanistan. Remember when I moved here, the largest known gathering of Christians was eight people. Today, there are reports that there are thousands. We may never know of an above-ground church in Afghanistan. It may be the church stays underground for a very, very long time, but it's a glorious church. I think she was saying it was worth it to face death for the sake of the gospel in Afghanistan. The point is, we face death. We face death. The time may come when you and I may face death here in this country for the sake of the gospel. We don't know. But the fact is, Paul says, as it is written, we face death. As it is written, we face death with courage. As it is written, we face death as sheep to the slaughter. As it is written, human rights advocates have been, has, have been quoted as saying that there are over 600,000 Christians martyred every year for their faith in this world. I don't know if that's true, but James Montgomery Boyce quoted that statement before he died. And I'm amazed at the number. But around the world, there are a lot of Christian martyrs even today in this enlightened age of ours. As it is written... Psalm 44:22. I'm not sure when that was written, but it was possibly during the Assyrian invasion of Judah under Sennacherib, facing military annihilation. The Assyrians had conquered Israel's northern ten tribes. Now Judah threatened assassinate, uh, threatened, was threatened by the uh, Assyrian army. The British Museum in London contains Sennacherib's cylinder. The cuneiform text records eight military expeditions against Judah and it told about their uh, assault against the fortified cities of Judah. And God's people were butchered like sheep in a slaughterhouse. And if that was possible then, it's possible then. It's, it was possible in Paul's day. And he quoted the same text. We faced death like sheep to a slaughter. They were, though, they were there in 
the ancient history. And Paul says the same thing is possible in his day. And what God's Word says about the believer's security in Christ is a possibility for us today. And it leads to conquest. Paul uses the contrast between sheep to the slaughter and ultimate victory. We are more than conquerors. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Sheep to the slaughter and more than conquerors. That's a paradox. The New American Standard Bible says we overwhelmingly conquer. That paradox in verse 36, we're compared to sheep. Whoever heard of naming a college football team sheep? Well, we do have the rams, but we're super conquerors, hyper conquerors, uber conquerors, ultra conquerors. It's an intellectual absurdity, but spiritually it makes perfect sense because it's not our conquest, it's His conquest. The conquest is through Him who loved us. I so appreciate the songs that we sang today in preparation for this message today because it's a spiritual conquest that was won by the Lord Jesus Christ when He died and rose again from the dead. And His victory is our victory. It's not our strength, it's His strength. It's not our victory, it's His victory. And it's His victory that we share in. And He gives us the benefits of His victory in our weakness. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And it's His victory through Him who loved us. He gives us His victory. Jesus Christ has won the victory. Now the question is this. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Are you justified by faith? The fact is, In your weakness, you can be made strong. Vance Havner used to talk about the mighty Roman Colosseum. We saw a picture of it a moment ago. Built by the Jewish slave labor under Emperor Flavius. It seated 50,000 people. The gladiators would fight wild beasts for public entertainment in the Colosseum. The primitive bloodlust would appeased only by ever more cruel and grotesque killings and torture. But it was not the howling mob in the Colosseum that determined the course of human history. Underground in the catacombs, another force was brewing. A comparative handful of peace-loving men and women worshipped another king, Jesus. That was the beginning of another kingdom within the empire, made up of the scum of the earth, little groups of slaves and freedmen praying and singing, observing the Lord's Supper. If you had seen them, you would have said they haven't got a chance. But the Christians meeting underground upset the Caesars above ground. The catacombs put the Colosseum out of business. Therefore, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the victory that was won on the cross and in the empty tomb by our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we share in his victory, that his victory is our victory. In spite of our weakness, we are made strong through him who loved us. We pray that you may help us to have great faith in his victory over death, his victory over sin, his victory over suffering, his victory over opposition, his victory over Satan, his victory over the powers of hell, his victory over darkness, his victory over suffering, his victory over evil. We pray that you will help us to have great faith in his victory over our doubts and fears. Give us joy in our lives and give us victory. In Jesus' name, amen.